0: Father God, thank You for this afternoon. Thank You for this place that we can worship. Sing together praises to You. Praises to Christ our King. And we ask, Lord, that as we turn now to Your Word, we look into the Scriptures and we see Christ revealed to us, Lord, that our hearts would respond with joy, that we would be filled with faith, or that we would receive from you the nourishment of your truth, so you might receive all the glory and the honor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you here in uh, this gym. I did enjoy the acoustic worship set, um, and, uh, you know, there's a song that I really like from the past that you might know. It says, Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> Um, so if you enjoyed that set, but you're not really loving meeting in a gym, just remember that if and when we have a giving campaign for the future and we don't end up in a, an elementary school somewhere. Just kidding. Just kidding. We might. And if we do, praise God. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 19. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe It is, as always, a pleasure and a joy to be with you and to preach God's Word. Today is Palm Sunday, and chapter 19 of the book of Luke talks about the triumphal entry of Jesus. But before we get there just yet, I want to start with a story that Jesus told. The story of a nobleman who inherited some wealth and he inherited basically what the Bible says was a kingdom in a far off land and so deciding to go and receive that kingdom he left his existing land in the trust of 10 of his most trusted servants it was a long journey it was a far off place and so he would be gone for a while he didn't know how long or at least he didn't say how long and so his servants were given one minus each to take care of the kingdom while he was away now Days passed, months even, we don't know exactly how long, and everyone kind of seemed to settle into this new reality that the king was no longer immediately present with them. He was far away. Eventually, people got used to this fact, and the people who lived in the land of this nobleman decided one day that they liked this arrangement much better that they didn't want to be ruled anymore by this nobleman who was no longer present. And so they decided to get together and they actually wrote out a letter and they sent it by delegation to tell the nobleman, hey, we don't want your rule anymore. You're no longer welcome here. And even though he was a good good ruler, they felt that they could do better. They sent the message by the delegation to the Lord in the far off land and things went on as Normal. They continued to live without that king, that nobleman nearby. They continued to do their own thing, but eventually the day arrived when the rightful lord of the land returned. And what Jesus said is that the first thing he did when he came back was to settle accounts with the servants that he had put in charge, to make sure that they had taken care of his resources in a way that was wise and beneficial. But when he was done with that, he turned his attention to the citizens of the land who had sent him that rejection letter. And as he looked upon the citizens who had told him they no longer wanted his rule, an air of realization came over those people. And this is what he said in verse 27 of Luke 19. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, maybe that wasn't the story you were expecting to hear on Palm Sunday. The reason I tell you this story is simple and will be explained more as we go into the sermon. But this is the context in the book of Luke for the triumphal entry of Jesus. Immediately after this parable that Jesus gives, Luke talks about the fact that Jesus entered on that Sunday thousands of years ago to the praise and acclaim of the people. We're going to talk about those events today. We're not going to preach that parable, but we're going to talk about Palm Sunday. And you guys probably know what that is, right? Palm Sunday refers to the Sunday when Jesus arrived at Jerusalem and it kicked off the beginning of what the church has often called Holy Week. The week preceding the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate each year at the time of Easter. Palm Sunday refers to the fact that when Jesus came to Jerusalem, the people who saw him coming, they they laid down their cloaks before him. And for those who didn't have a cloak to lay down, they took these palm branches and they put them on the road so that Jesus could ride on them kind of on a red carpet into town and the story that i told that jesus told reveals to us that palm sunday that triumphal entry is really a story about the return of the one true king so all that was simply introduction to get into our main passage this afternoon luke 19 verses 28 through 40 the triumphal entry you can read it with me and when he had said these things And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. If we're going to understand what Easter is all about this week in our Good Friday service, our our upcoming Resurrection Sunday service, it has to start here with us receiving Jesus as the rightful king. And so from the passage this afternoon, as we kind of dive into it, here's what we're going to focus on. Three parts of this story that show us that Jesus is the king and that invite us to welcome his reign in our lives. So first, we start in this passage with the plan. The plan, which takes place in verses 28 through 34. It's a plan that shows us that Jesus himself proclaimed himself as God's king. Let's look at the first few verses. When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, the first thing that we see in this passage is that as Jesus prepares to enter Jerusalem, He has a plan and it might strike you a bit out of the ordinary, right? I don't know if you guys have spent much time reading your, your Bibles recently. I hope you have, maybe you've been in the gospels and you think about your picture of who Jesus is. What do you imagine him to be like? I don't often think about Jesus as this great administrator. You know what I'm talking about? I don't really think about him like kind of planning out everything the way that it's kind of talked about in this passage. I know Jesus is in control. I know he's the boss. But when I read the Bible, oftentimes his ministry feels a lot more like a a street preacher or like a hippie than it seems like a guy planning out his day with a calendar. Nevertheless, this passage tells us that this isn't out of character at all. It's not an anomaly. In fact, what the passage is showing us is something that we need to understand about Jesus. If you're going to understand the Bible at all, if you're going to read about him in the Bible, you need to understand that everything Jesus did was according to plan. It's not a stretch to say that he was the most intentional person to have ever lived. Everything Jesus did had a purpose. The difference here is that we get to see more intimately how detailed the plan was. The text doesn't tell us if this plan to to go find this cult was a supernatural thing, or as if Jesus kind of just looked into the future and knew exactly where the cult would be, or maybe, more likely, it was that Jesus had planned this whole thing out. But You think about the stories of Jesus and all of the miracles and stuff. There's nothing in this passage that says it was a miracle. In fact, what probably happened was Jesus sent someone ahead to get this cult ready so that when he arrived on this day he could ride it into town. It shows us that he took great pains to ensure this happened in the right way at the right time exactly when he wanted. And you think about the fact that this cult was a cult on which no one had ever yet sat. That means that this plan took a little bit of time, right? It wasn't something that you could just do on a fly. He had to know that this cult would be prepared and not ridden by anyone else so that it would be ready for him. And why, again, does it happen? It's to show us that Jesus is the man with the plan. He always has been. And this plan is meant to communicate something important to the people who would see him that day and to us. He's going to walk in. Well, not walk. He's going to ride in on a donkey. He doesn't just slip in by night. He stops one to two miles away. And we need to understand how, just just purposeful this all is. Jesus stops only about a mile and a half away from the city near the towns of Bethany and Bethphage. And as I said years ago when we preached this passage in Matthew, it's only about the distance from here to Waters Creek. So you guys can kind of think about how far that is. You don't actually have to stop before you go there. You could do the rest of the walk in probably less than an hour. Jesus stops. He calls a donkey Uber, so to speak. And Why? Because this is what the king was supposed to do. Turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. You're going to go back a few chapters, a few books in the Bible before the Gospels, near the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The prophet Zechariah prophesied about a coming king. And now like many of the prophets in the Old Testament, he prophesied about judgment, but also about restoration, And here he prophesied that though the human kings of Israel had failed God's people, God would send a king to make things right. And so verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing. There was this promise. There was this plan, the promise of a Savior, a Messiah, a righteous one who would come to Jerusalem on the colt, on the fowl of a donkey, and make things right. And so it's starting to make sense here, exactly what Jesus' plan was. My daughter is in a basketball league. Um, She is very short, and uh, they're very young. So they don't have many skills. Right. Most of them can barely dribble without traveling or double dribbling, none of them are amazing. And yet on every team, it seems, there is one kid who's wearing the number 23. You guys know what that means? It's announcing something, right? Probably not even the kid announcing it, but their parent announcing that. My kid is supposed to be the best. My kid is the goat. That's the number of Michael Jordan, if you didn't know. Sometimes we can address the part, and that's what is happening here. What is Jesus' plan? First off, to announce, to proclaim, to claim before anyone who would see him that day that he was the true king. To make no doubt about it, verse 32, So those who were sent away went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. See, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem that day on the back of a young donkey. And to do that carried weight, that he was the king, not just the king, but the one sent by the Lord. Notice the use of the term Lord here. It is a term of authority, of importance. There's no question what Jesus is saying. It's not just that he is a king. He is God's king. It's not just that he had a plan. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. And so let me say on Palm Sunday for us sitting here in this gym, maybe just a takeaway so far. Jesus does have a plan. And in light of this text, where Jesus planned to announce his identity as the king, do you know what the plan is that God has for your life? It's an interesting question, right? It kind of sounds like um, touched by an angel or something like that. Do you wonder what God's plan is? I'm guessing that for most of us, for many of us, there are situations in our lives where we are questioning Even as a pastor, I know that there are times when it feels like God isn't really in control of all this. Perhaps you're wondering why your life has gone the way that it has. I remember many times in my life kind of praying a certain way. Maybe you can relate to this. And I know that God doesn't always do what I want. But sometimes I pray for something that seems good. Right, Like, God, why won't you take away this desire for something bad that I have? Or, God, why won't you just just change this person's life who's going in a direction that's so destructive? Right, I know this is something good, and I'm praying for it. Why doesn't God do this thing? I know it would honor him. I know it would please him. You wonder, why is God acting this way? Why is God allowing things to happen this way? And it seems like things are just out of control, even out of God's control. But Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Sunday tells us, that it isn't true. God does have a plan, but that plan revolves around Jesus being the king. You guys understand that? Like I'm praying, God, will you just take away this desire for this sin? God is saying, no, I'm not going to take that away unless Jesus is the king. This is the first step of revealing to us as people in a broken world, the plan of God In everything. And it's crazy to think, right? This is just a guy on a donkey, but it means so much more. And so let me just say now, though I'll dive into it more later, if you've ever asked the question, what God's plan is, there's an answer for you. It's for Jesus Christ to reign. Whether you are already a Christian and you need to live in submission to Him more, or whether you are not a Christian yet, God's desire, his plan is for Christ to reign over everything and in your heart and in your life as well, if you would respond to him. Jesus is God's chosen king. Suffering is a given. Pain is inevitable. Sin will mess things up. But if Jesus reigns, we get a glimpse, the first glimpse, but the most important glimpse of God's perfect plan. King Jesus if you would recognize him as king now will begin to change your life. And so we move now from the plan to the procession in verses 35 to 38, the procession into Jerusalem, which shows us the right way to respond to Jesus as king. And they brought it to Jesus, the donkey throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What we see next is Jesus' plan put into place, and the people responding to what they see. Now, their response here, it's meant to encourage us, to respond in a similar way. If I, if I said that Jesus reigning is God's plan for your life, then what are you supposed to do with that knowledge? These people show us a bit of that in the text, Jesus receives a donkey from his disciples. And when he does, what do they do? They take their cloaks and they put it on the donkey to make kind of a makeshift saddle for him. So he doesn't have to sit just directly on the donkey's back. They honor him with this action. Now, one of the things that is often mentioned in Palm Sunday um, sermons is how the crowds welcomed Jesus one week, and then five days later, they kind of turned their back on him, right? It seems that that's the case, that they were kind of cheering. They were excited that Jesus was coming in. But five days later, on Good Friday, when Jesus was arrested and brought to trial, they said, crucify him, right? They turned their back on him. But what we need to understand is that, what Luke highlights for us here is the fact that the crowd that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem was a mixed crowd. It wasn't just people who were from Jerusalem. There were people who actually came with him, his disciples. You can see that in the text. It says his disciples, in verse 37, the whole multitude of them were with him. They were coming with him and they were rejoicing and they were praising him. And part of that reason was that many of them had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They had seen an amazing thing happened. Happen. A large portion of these people were his disciples, and so the focus on this passage is positive. It's on those who know who he is, and they are rejoicing and proclaiming him as king in this royal procession. It shows us, it instructs us, even today, perhaps no better time than Easter, about how we are to respond to Jesus as king. You see, if Jesus is the king, if he really is who he proclaimed himself to be, then what are we going to do about it? You know, I plan to come into this sermon and look around the room and look at all of you, and I did all that. And you know, I think most of you here who I know, you, you have an understanding of who Jesus is, but I know not all of you are in this place. The question is. Who do you really believe Jesus is? See, you can be in church, you can hear all this stuff, and you can even accept it as, this is just good Christian things for me to know and listen to. But if you don't respond rightly to Jesus, you'll miss out on all of the blessings of his reign. So let's look at what they do. Look at what happens in this procession. See how they respond to the king. First, the people respond with their actions. The people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, it's a very interesting thing to do, to lay down your outer garment or your cloak on the road, and the idea is that it is a sacrificial action. Last week, I was uh, in my truck with my kids, and they love to ride in the back of the truck. It's technically illegal, I know, um, but we only did it in our alley. And I was backing up out of my driveway, and while I was backing up, I heard a loud like screech or something, something scraping against the ground. And I got out of the car, and I looked under my tire, and I had run over Teddy's uh, scooter. So he doesn't have a scooter anymore. It's broken. It's destroyed. Now, a truck is a lot more destructive than a donkey. When you think about putting your cloaks on the ground before the donkey, we need to understand, we have to understand, now, this was a sacrificial action. You see, an outer cloak in the Bible was a necessary part of life. In the Old Testament, there's even talk about this outer cloak that people would wear and that you were not allowed to hold it as interest against a loan. You weren't allowed to take someone's outer cloak because they needed it on a day-to-day basis, right? You can't take this necessity from their life. And so when we read this passage, what's happening is that the people see Jesus. They see him proclaiming himself as the coming king. And in their, their excitement, they take this valuable thing they own and they put it on the ground in front of him. And you know what? Donkeys can walk on the dirt. Okay, you guys know that donkeys can walk up and down the Grand Canyon. They have no problem walking on the dirt, but they didn't want it to walk on the dirt. Why? Because they wanted to honor Jesus as king. They wanted to sacrifice to him. Just a few weeks ago, at the end of Second Samuel, when David bought the land that would be used for the temple, what did he say? He said, I will not offer sacrifices to the Lord that cost me nothing. You see, for us to respond to Jesus as king, it means that we inevitably will sacrifice. And I speak to myself here. This is a hard thing, but what is the core of the Christian message? Have you ever thought that? I mean, maybe you've been around church for a while. Maybe you are a Christian. What exactly is the the core of the Christian message? We know it's the gospel. We know it's something that Jesus did, right? We, We know that the gospel is all about the work God has done. But what does it mean to be a Christian? Right? I can know all those things. How do I become a Christian? It's simple. No longer about me. It's about him. That's it, right? God did all the work, but what do I do to respond? It's no longer about me. I I sacrifice so that it can be about him. When I was a young Christian, I heard something that seemed so impossible from an older guy in the church. He was asked the question, how much should I give of my money to the Lord? Okay, And this was an important question for me as a young man who was starting to make money in my life. And he said, you should give until it makes you uncomfortable. I was like, that, that sounds terrible, right? I don't want to do that. I was asking, how much could I comfortably give to the church? No, he said, give until it makes you uncomfortable. Now, it's not just about money. It's about your life. If Jesus is king, then the response to him is that I'm no longer going to think I'm the king. See, if you are not a Christian, maybe this is the step that you need to take. Maybe you, you, you can assent to everything you've heard, but you're afraid to actually sacrifice yourself, die to yourself to make Christ the most important person in your life. If you are a Christian, let me ask you this question. What are you doing in your life because Jesus is in charge and not you? What people are you dealing with That you wouldn't deal with if not for Jesus being the King. What character are you showing? What conviction are you following? Not because it is simply yours, but because it is God's call for you revealed in His Word. We need to see how the people proclaim Jesus as King with their actions. And secondly, they did it with their attitude. It wasn't just the act of placing cloaks down or palm branches. Luke tells us that something was going on in the hearts of the people. There was an attitude of rejoicing. And you guys can see that right there. They were rejoicing. They were proclaiming just how happy they were about it. We need to recognize in this text that the scriptures tell us that when Jesus entered on the back of a donkey, the people experienced something that was life-giving to them. But it wasn't just that, man, I'm going to lose my cloak. Like, woe is me. They weren't sad about it. They were rejoicing. They were they were jumping in the streets because they were seeing Jesus as the king. It says that as he was drawing near, coming down the Mount of Olives, they saw this beginning to happen. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. And that is such a good word for us to rejoice. You know, we're seven years into the church plant. And let me tell you, there's sometimes in life, in ministry, where I don't feel like rejoicing at all. Because I think, man, it's just these things that God tells me I got to do. People I got to love, people I got to serve, things I got to get taken care of. And that is absolutely not what the Christian life is about. On Palm Sunday, we see a glimpse of how joyful it is meant to be when we understand that Jesus sets the agenda and not us. Now, a lot of people in church, they struggle in the same way I do. Joy is not always just right there in their hand. It seems to be a little bit out of reach. We want the joy of the Lord to be our strength. We feel maybe that we we are tired and and lost and maybe just frustrated. But notice here in this passage, what causes the rejoicing? See, a lot of times we wish that we could just see Jesus in glory. We could just see everything turn out perfectly right now. But that's not what happens here. Jesus is not having a second transfiguration. Jesus is not glowing. He's not shining brightly like the sun like he did before. He's coming down into the city on a donkey. Why do they rejoice? Not because they see Jesus in glory, but because they see Jesus as King. Like the timing of when we will have these, these, these moments of feeling so close to God, not always in our control the bible says one day every christian will see christ in glory but again the timing is not for us to decide but now right now wherever you're at you can still find joy if you would see jesus as the king how can that be the case maybe you're thinking i'm going through something hard how can i rejoice just by knowing jesus is king well, it's because you can know if you know Jesus is king that everything will be alright. You know, this is one of the most um, trite things to say, right? Everything will be alright. And yet, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever said that to someone? It's going to be okay. It's weird, right? It's the most trite thing we know, right? It's, it's so, like, overblown. It's so hackneyed. Like, why would you say something like that to someone and yet... We naturally say it. This is like deep inside our, 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 the recesses of our heart. We know that if there are a way to know that everything would be okay, you could pull through this. If there is some way for us to just know beyond a shadow of doubt that everything would be okay, that there was a purpose, a plan, a person who would make things right, we could be okay. You see, the Bible tells us that there is joy in knowing the true king. The reason why we all naturally say that it'll be all right is because this is kind of how the world works. There are things that are wrong with the world, but God has said he will make things right. How can we know for sure? By coming to Jesus. The Bible says in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven a passage that so many people have memorized. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What is that about? Well, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all God's promises. No matter what's happening in your life, if you know Jesus as king, you can endure all things and you can do it with joy. In The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, he he writes about um, the coronation of Aragorn as the new king. And you guys know the movie, right? The Return of the King. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know if you guys have read the books. I love The Lord of the Rings books. Tolkien has a way with words that is amazing. And this is what he writes, okay? About the coronation of the king. But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence. For it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. His inspiration was Christ. This is what having Christ as king can do. Not because your situation will be transformed in a moment, but because your circumstance is interpreted in light of who the king is, and what he will ultimately do. There's rejoicing. This leads us to the third aspect of the response, the words. The actions, the attitude, and the words. The disciples in the crowd, they receive the king, they are walking with him in this procession, and then they say in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And these words, they make explicit what is going on in the hearts of the people, and they tell us what it means to, again, receive Christ as king. These words, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, we read them in our scripture reading. They're from Psalm 118. They were used by the people to bless the king of Israel back when he would ride to the temple to offer sacrifices. So the words are a clear confession from the people that we receive Jesus as king. We receive him, and we bless him, and we honor him. And as we look at these words, what we see is the nature of our praise is not about how good he makes our lives. It's not about how good he turns the things in our lives to be the way we want them to be. It's not about us. It's about him. And oftentimes when I'm trying to pray with my kids, I find myself falling into this pattern. I say, thank you, God, for everything you've given to us. Amen. All right, that's it. Thank you, God, for all the good things. And I wonder sometimes, now, what would I pray if today was just a terrible day? Because all I say is, thank you for the good things. Am I teaching my kids the truth about God, that he is always to be praised, not because of what he does for us, so that's a big part of it, but firstly because of who he is. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, in the triumphal entry, we see that our praise, our, our, our words about Jesus are fundamentally not about us, but about him. To make much of him, to bless him, to use my words for his glory. And all these three things, the actions of sacrifice, the attitude of joy, the words of praise, the focus shifts from the people to Christ. You know, it's a strange thing in the world, but it's true. The key to happiness is to make your life less about yourself and more about God. So you've been real unhappy lately? Think about this. The key to happiness is to make your life less about yourself and more about God and consequently others. But it's the only way it works. It's the only way sacrifice and joy and worship all come together in the life of someone is to understand that Jesus is king. I spent a week a few decades ago in the inner city of L.A. on a missions trip. And this was kind of a, an interesting trip. Um, I'm from L.A., um, but I'm not from the inner city, um, as you can tell by uh, me being pretty um, weak and soft and <laughs> scared of things. But we were there for about a week, and it was an interesting time. We stayed in a small church uh, right in the, the middle of Watts, which is uh, just not a good part of town. And in the church, um, uh, there was very little there, and we were sleeping. And, and one night that week, we just heard gunshots right outside the church, right? I don't know what happened. I know that there was gang activity in the area, and it was kind of eye-opening to me. I never experienced something like that. And the interesting thing was um, the pastor of the church, he lived right next door. Right? This wasn't one week for him. This was life. And I imagine that this pastor had had kind of grown up in the inner city as well. But when I talked to him, what I found out was, no, he was not. He was a suburban guy like me. He was someone who, you know, went and got his uh, degree at like uh, Cal State San Bernardino or something like that. He he was not from the inner city. And yet one day he had given up his CPA practice to go and live in the inner city and start this tiny church, in this house, in Watts. And I said, you know, why Why did you do it, right? That's the question. Why would you do this, right? He didn't have a family. He didn't have a wife. He had, I think, an older brother who had passed away. Um, and he was just telling me the story of his life. And, and when he told me the story, it didn't make sense because I was like, why would you do this? He moved there. Not only that, he lived with his brother. They had been... Falsely arrested. They had been attacked or threatened by gang members. They had received all of these difficult things in life. I said, why did you do this? And what he told me was something that sounded a little bit trite. If it weren't for the fact that he were living it. He said, this is what you gotta know, Eric. This is the most basic acronym of the Christian life. It's joy. Jesus first, other second, yourself last. Absolutely life changing. Not just to hear it, but if you would live it. See, the reality of Jesus as the king should give us reason and cause to rejoice and worship and praise no matter our circumstances. And that leads us to the third part of this Palm Sunday passage. We've seen the plan, we've seen the procession, and finally we see the protest. Despite the procession that welcomed Jesus, there were those who did not get it or specifically, those who did not like it. The religious leaders of Jerusalem, they saw what was happening in verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The scene is interesting. Jesus has proclaimed he's the king. He's made no uh, qualms about it. He is the king sent by God, promised the long-awaited Messiah, the one in whom righteousness and salvation comes. But the Pharisees, the people who taught the Bible, the religious leaders, they hated what they saw. They hated what was happening. And this is the, the, the reality of Palm Sunday. While some received him with joy, those who should have been able to spot him as king, those who should have known best, the religious leaders were the ones who hated it most. It's, it, it causes us to question, like, what was going on? Why would these people dislike the fact that the prophecy of Zechariah was coming true in their, their very presence? They were seeing this happen. What didn't they like? Look at this passage more closely. The Pharisees were so disturbed by the praise given to Jesus. What did they say? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They told Jesus to tell the crowds... The people who were praising him and honoring him to stop making such a commotion. Why would that happen? What would possess them to, to tell Jesus to quiet the crowds? It's simple, I think. The Pharisees were concerned because they weren't really thinking about the prophecy. They weren't really thinking about Jesus. They weren't thinking about the crowds. What they were thinking about is the fact that they already had a king. We've got to put this in the context historically, right? The Pharisees, they, they were in control to some degree in Jerusalem, but they weren't the ones who actually owned the government. It was Caesar. It was Rome. There already was a king over Israel, in a sense. It was the one that the emperor had placed there. Caesar was supposedly the king of the world. And so for the Pharisees, it seemed like the height of foolishness for Jesus to stir up his followers to declare him as king. They weren't even concerned with whether or not it was true. They just didn't want him to cause trouble. Multiple Roman historians have described Jerusalem as a difficult and rebellious city. The Pharisees probably thought, Jesus is going to cause problems for us and problems for everyone if he doesn't stop acting like a king. What does Jesus say? I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. On the one hand, Jesus makes clear that he's not the kind of king the Pharisees were concerned about. He doesn't say here that the stones would rise up against the Romans. He says the stones would cry out in praise. And it's instructive for us. When the religious leaders sought to kill Jesus, they accused him of insurrection. But Jesus, what did he say to Pilate when Pilate asked him about it? He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not from the world. Remember that when Jesus' servants fought, he stopped them, right? He stopped Peter from cutting off the ear of the guy. He healed that guy's ear. But what will Jesus not rebuke? What will Jesus not stop? It's right here in the passage. He will not stop those who praise him, those who honor him, those who lift him up as king. That's what the protest shows us. To reject the rule of Jesus is a choice, that some people do make. Obviously, that's a choice that many people make. But it cannot stop the plan and purposes of God for Jesus to ultimately be the king. You guys have heard the phrase, I think, that there are only two things in life that are certain. You guys know what they are? Death and taxes. Taxes. Hey, Benjamin Franklin, not our favorite guy here, or not, not my favorite guy, um, but he was right about this. Tax season is almost here, by the way, <laughs> just a aside. Uh, it's due in a few weeks, so don't forget taxes. But the first part, the serious answer that Ben Franklin gave was death, the only certain thing, and he was right. Have you guys ever felt that death is one of the only things that that we can be certain about? You know, I'm very grateful for modern medicine. I know we have a lot of medical professionals here in the room. I am thankful for your service. I am glad that I don't have to live in a time when I didn't have all this medicine and help. But it is an uncomfortable truth that no matter how well we do, we never prevent death. We only postpone them. You guys know that? We never prevent death. We only postpone them. And so much of our life, what we spend our life on, our thoughts, our cares, it's decided on based on our thoughts about death, right? How long do I have before I die? How many years of retirement before death comes knocking? When will it be? How would I like to not die, right? What are the ways I don't want to find an end to my existence? We think about death kind of in the background of everything. Death grip on our lives is absolute, It's undeniable. It's inevitable that it is the backdrop of the way in which we live and think and do everything. But here Jesus says something else is inevitable. Not death. Jesus says something else can be the final word. Something is more inevitable to death and it is far better. What is it? The praise of Jesus Christ and his glorious grace. According to Jesus, you cannot stop the praise of his name, you can only postpone it. This is incredible news. There is nothing more inevitable in this world than the praise of Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to rebuke them. I'm not going to stop them. If I stop them, the stones themselves would cry out because praise is what this universe was created to do. You guys know that Paul talks about this. He talks about this, this big meta idea that the universe All of creation, groans and it waits for kind of the restoration of all things so that God would be rightly praised. The Bible teaches us that all things were created by Jesus Christ and exist for his glory and for his pleasure. The Bible says that one day every enemy will be put under his feet and the kingdoms of man shall become the kingdom of God and everything will be made right and new. And Jesus showed when he arrived on Jerusalem that day that he is the king and one day ultimately, inevitably he alone will reign and receive the glory. So if this is what the word of God says and for us as Christians remembering Palm Sunday we need to believe it. Do you know do you actually believe that if not us, the very stones would cry out to their creator? Do you guys know, do you believe that if not the people, the universe will be restored, will be made new, and will give God all of the glory for eternity? Do you know, do you believe that if not the people creation itself will be what it was always meant to be under the perfect rule of God. If so, then then maybe we could live by a bit more faith. Maybe if you are not a Christian yet, maybe the fact that it would be such a big change to your life to become a Christian, maybe the fact that it would seem like such such a drastic step wouldn't be all that scary anymore? Because you know where things are going. The Pharisees, they didn't want the people to talk about Jesus as king. They thought it was problematic. Maybe you felt this way. Have you ever felt that those around you think that talking about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, being about Jesus is too problematic of a thing? People will think you're weird or backwards or hateful. I felt it. I felt at times when people say, man, Christians are going to be on the wrong side of history when it comes to all these different topics. It kind of makes me want to, want to hide, right? And just like, man, I don't want to be in the spotlight anymore. But if we really believe what Jesus says, we'll understand that what we present people with is the opportunity, the opportunity. To no longer be enemies, but friends of God. To no longer be those who reject the inevitable rule and reign and praise of Christ, but instead jump to it, rejoice in it, receive it as we ought to. With Easter coming up, there's an opportunity to talk about the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Let me tell you something that's interesting in my own life. I've often felt scared to share the gospel. Okay? Okay. I've often felt scared that people will respond a certain way. But what Jesus says here about the very stones would cry out if they were silent, it gives me hope. And when I've actually talked to people, when I've actually tried in faith to lovingly talk to people about who Jesus is, only twice in my life has someone actually said, stop talking, right? Get out of here. Only twice. In fact, many times in my life, people have heard this, And I don't know if they eventually became Christians, but they've realized that there's something there that they need. There's something they were meant for. There's something more to life than making it about us. There's an inevitability of God's rule, and we're meant to give him praise. There will be some who reject it. There will be some who have a problem with it, but by God's grace, there are some who will hear it, and they will know. And they will respond. If praise is inevitable, then maybe fear of being rejected is no longer the thing that drives our silence about Jesus. The protest of the Pharisees shows us that there is a wrong response to Jesus. It's possible to miss the identity of the Savior and King, but we don't have to miss it. And if we don't miss it, we don't want others to miss it either. If we see the inevitability of his praise, we will proclaim him even when we kind of feel like we want to be silent. So we'll close here. Have you ever felt that a story you heard was really a story about you? Yeah, that's what I'm talking. I, You know, I've had this experience a lot at Zoe. A lot of times Jesse will be telling a story about someone in his past, and I think, is he talking about me? But sometimes that's the way we're supposed to feel. In the parable Jesus told, Before the first Palm Sunday, a nobleman, a king, went away. And while he was away for a long time, the citizens rebelled against him. But one day he returned. And when he did, he called his servants and his subjects to account. And it's really just the story of us. It's the story of this world. We were created by God to live in a perfect relationship with him. We were meant to live under his rule, to know him, to live forever in the joy of his presence. And yet Adam and Eve sinned, and each one of us subsequently has sinned. We are all sinners. We've done things our way, rejected God's rule. We've said to him, we don't want you to reign over us anymore. The right punishment for that rebellion is death to be killed for our treason, to be killed for the million ways we have brought sin into this world, the ways in which we have not just maligned the name of God, but also hurt people around us. You can't be an honest human and not know that you're part of the problem. But here's the thing. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, 2000 years ago, he didn't set up an executioner's chair. He didn't ride to the courtroom on that day. Instead, as he approached the city, Luke nineteen forty one, the very next verse says, As Jesus was coming down towards Jerusalem, he wept. And he said, Would that you, even you, would know this day the things that make for peace. In the grace of God, when the king returned the first time, 2,000 years ago, he proclaimed his reign and he invited those who had rejected him to not find punishment, but to find peace. Jesus is the king. He is the one we have rejected in our sin, but he is also the savior sent by God who can reconcile us to the father and give us peace. And so this Sunday afternoon in this gym, as we look forward to this week, as we take communion together, we need to turn our eyes to him. Let's pray together. We don't often pray in a way that leads you to say or do anything in particular, but I think that in light of this week and this text, we'd like to do that. Father God, we come before you and Lord, we know that there are many things that seek to rule us, many things that seek to dominate our thoughts and our lives. I just have, Lord, in mind the the image of Christ weeping and saying, would that you had known this day the things that make for peace. Lord, I pray that that would be the case for us here. If there are any here who have wondered about Christ, who have not know whether or not they they, they do want to make Christ king, Lord, I pray that you would help them. If that's you, Lord, uh, if that's you today in this congregation, I pray that you would turn to the Lord, that you would confess and believe that Jesus is the king, that you would ask him to forgive your sins, that you would put your trust in him and walk according to his rule and according to his praise. For those of us who have believed, we're going to take communion in a second. But let's pray right now to the Lord in the silence of our hearts, acknowledging Christ, giving him the worship. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus to this earth. (laughs) We thank you that of all the brokenness that we've experienced and all the things that we've seen and all the ways in which we fall short and turn against you and turn away from you, you still had a plan. And that perfect plan was for your son to come first, not as a conquering king, but as a servant king, as a sacrificial lamb, to go into Jerusalem that day, proclaiming your rule, but purchasing us from sin through his ultimate death and resurrection. Or we know that we could do nothing to deserve this. But we know that there is nothing in ourselves worthy of salvation. And you have done it all. That's the good news. You have done what we could never do. And so, Lord, would we just respond? Would we remember as we take communion that it's not about us. It is about Christ, that we receive from him would he then receive from us, the glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.